The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'll continue my talks on the four foundations of mindfulness. And um, we're getting now towards the end end of the series of talks and uh, and kind of the end of the journey. And as I've been emphasizing, uh, the way that the mindfulness practice is taught in the sutta can be interpreted as providing a journey of deep... I like like the metaphor of going deep, so going deeper and deeper into the practice. Some people maybe use metaphors of height and go higher and higher. But I like deeper because it's more grounded, it's more less less disconnected. High sometimes people get high, they're kind of spacey. And uh, and also uh, the deeper for me is like you go deep inside, deep, really connect to oneself in a deep kind of way. And um, <clears throat> so it's a journey to this very deep connection. And at some point in this connection, uh, you get to a place where there's some choice. And uh, you start seeing the place of choice and, um, and the ability to see that we have some choice about how we relate to our life, how we, how we use our minds, um, is a very powerful thing to see. Um, if we could also know how to exercise that choice. And in particular, having to do with the attachments that uh, bring about a lot of the suffering that people have. If we can see there's some choice about how to be involved in attachment and choose not to be, it makes a huge difference in a life. So uh, a lot, and it can be said that a lot of the earlier exercises of mindfulness uh, have a function. Part of their function is to get a settled, uh, calm, and very sensitive, uh, heightened sensitivity to our present moment experience, especially kind of internally. What's really happening inside of us, uh, in our body, our feelings, our emotions, our mind states, and um, and as we ha- get develop this heightened sensitivity and ability to really uh, abide or really kind of stay in the flow of the present moment, um, then it becomes easier and easier to see where there might be choice and we can make a difference in, uh, in how we relate to this world of ours and to ourselves. Uh, I find this mindfulness practice a remarkable uh, thing to be involved in. And um, to uh, have a, a, a way of not being lost in thought, to have a way of not being disconnected in abstract ideas and preoccupations, and really kind of uh, begin to allow the natural uh, functioning of our senses and our capacity to be settled and at peace. It's a beautiful thing. Um, today I heard a beautiful definition of the Dharma. And um, see if I have it right. One of, some of you were there when I heard it, but maybe I can, maybe you can tell me if I got it right. Um, uh, the Dharma is uh, reality's way of finding its way to peace. Are close enough? Reality's way of finding its way to peace. So whatever, whatever helps reality. It's, I like the word because the person didn't say, you know, how I find peace. You know, it was much more encompassing. <clears throat> Dharma is usually seen as being something, you know, much more than just something personal. So I kind of was inspired by that. So, <clears throat> so to come into this deeper connection of not being preoccupied, 
um, preoccupied, many times, much of the preoccupation has to do with self, <clears throat> and find this relief from self-concern, self-preoccupation, and allow some deeper process to happen that is not really, part of it is we have choice, and part of it is something that um, we allow that which doesn't have, that which operates without our choice, we allow is a deeper process that unfold, natural process that's within us. It doesn't involve our doing so much. And the play between what we do and the play of what we allow to happen and unfold is this beautiful dance of meditation practice and mindfulness practice. So here we are, practicing mindfulness and giving this talk after you've sat for 45 minutes and most of you look kind of quiet. I hope that's a nice way. I hope you feel a little bit more connected to yourself, a little bit more maybe aware of what's happening, a little more maybe less preoccupied or caught up in your thoughts than when you came, maybe less tense than when you came. So here we are. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness uh, involves five different perspectives or exercises for cultivating this deeper insight into what goes on inside of us. And, um, and I like to, again, interpret this as a journey uh, because it starts with a coarser uh, insights. Or, and then we get to, once the coarser, coarser way of the mind operates gets quieter, it gives us access to see something a little bit more subtle. And, uh, and if that gets more subtle, we have a chance to see something a little more subtle and, and then you'll see, I'll, I'll talk about it at the end of today, then it opens up to um, something which is not so common for people to experience, but that is uh, seven beautiful qualities called the, that are kind of the treasures of a Dharma practice, called the seven factors of awakening. So the coarsest of these is what I talked about last week, is the five hindrances. So these are five major, often major preoccupations that people have that keep people caught up in their thoughts, their concerns, their worries, their fears, their desires, their hates. And um, the mind will get latch on. It's sometimes very hard to get out of it. People can hold resentments for decades. And that sense of resentment, that second hindrance of ill will, uh, I mean, it so, can be so tenacious for some people. Maybe it's not in the mind every single moment, but it, all they have to do is kind of maybe relax and they find a reservoir of resentment that kind of is still, still sitting there, reservoir of ill will, reservoir of something that, um, you know, that we carry with us. Uh, there can be very profound addictions in the human being. And even if we're not every, always addicted, always wanting, it doesn't take much to realize that the mind, the heart, is kind of always wanting something, reaching out, trying to get something. Uh, there can be profound sense of uh, regret, of anxiety, of worry, that we're so we're caught up in all the thoughts of worry and what 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 should happen, what, uh, what do I do, and how do I de- deal with things, how do I become safe? And the world of the five hindrances is very much a world of ideas, a world of concepts and stories, and so we, we often the fuel for these five hindrances are the story-making mind. So, and they're considered to be one of the primary mental forces activities that we want to quiet down when we're going to start being able to really connect to this fuller, deeper way of being aware, of being attentive. 
And so it's kind of like the door to really being present is to learn about their hindrances and be able to put them aside, not be caught in them. As the, if there are the more coarser things and we settle down, then the next coarse thing, I don't know if it's you know, necessarily so linear as the way I'm saying it, but it is, this is the, the, the sequence in the text. The next is um, uh, seeing something that's a little bit technical for people who are unfamiliar with this, something that's called the five aggregates. You probably didn't know that you, were, you had five aggregates in you. The word aggregates is kanda, which means uh, something, like a, uh, something like a heap, five heaps of things. And uh, so what is these five heaps and why are they important? Their primary, uh, one of the primary reasons why they're important in the Buddhist analysis of, the human, hum, of humanity, human activity, is that these are the five primary areas, at least in ancient India, where people uh, posited a self, where people got identified themselves with, this is who I am. And, um, and so here we're still involved with a little bit of ideas, a little bit of kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, ideas of things, that I am this, I am that, I'm not this, I'm not that. And uh, that's deeper, and it sometimes operates in more subtle and tenacious ways than, uh, you know, desire for sex or resentment toward my high school girlfriend or something. Um, you know, it's, uh, we carry the self with us, a self-identity. It's very deeply seated. It's something we're partly, tr- uh, partly we learn from our society, our family, uh, from whatever our psychological conditioning are, uh, what we take to be the self. It was a remarkable experience for me to be uh, uh, intimately living with uh, about 35 Japanese monks in Japan. Uh, we slept in the same room, we ate in the same room together, we had free time together in free room, we worked together. So we're intense. And, and Japanese culture is uh, a collectivist culture. So the idea that, uh, you know, and it was remarkable for me growing up in individualist the culture to have an intimate experience of a collectivist culture and could see a very different way in which people understood themselves they identify or got attached to who they are um, I didn't think that the collectivist culture was necessarily better than the individualistic one though in many ways it can be easily seen that way uh, but some ways it's, it causes more suffering different kind of suffering than the individualistic one so rather than seeing it's one is better than the other, they're just different ways that human societies organize themselves to get around and somehow get along well enough. Uh, we have to have some, some kind of principles to organize ourselves with. And so this idea of a self, self-identity, this is who I am, that seems like it's just automatic and natural for us to have, uh, when we practice deeply and really see what goes on in the mind, or if you go sometimes to different cultures, you see how relative it is and how much it's a social construct that we're living under. And I saw this very dramatically when I came back from, uh, well, from being in Asia for some time and then when after my first son was born. And um, when he was toddler and could talk and stuff like that, I don't know, maybe he was two or some three, somewhere there. And, um, and you know, parents, how parents talk and how they relate to kids and how parents think that people should get along and operate in the world has a big impact on these kids. That's what they pick up, they learn from them. And I could see, I was kind of uh, in awe and surprised 
to see how thoroughly I was raising my kid to be an individualist. That's the way I was raised. That's the way my cultural background, probably for generations, were. You know, so there's no surprise that I would do that. That's what I knew. Uh, what, was, uh, what, was, what was remarkable was that I saw it. Rather than seeing it, uh, rather, you know, I, before, before seeing it, I thought this is the way the universe was built. You know, just that's how it is. And isn't everyone like this? And then uh, to have had the experience, both of this kind of deep practice, to watch the little subtle movements of the mind and how we construct our reality to a great degree and to be in a different culture where they have a very different understanding of self really helped me to see what I was doing to my child. And I tried very hard, we tried, my wife and I tried very hard to um, modify how we raised our kid to, so to, to somehow um, not... Uh, convey the you know the worst of individualism individualistic to 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 my son but you know um, and so this idea of self I am this who I am that we often take for for granted gets questioned in Buddhism it's one of the really big explorations questionings that we do in Buddhist practice is to take a good look at who do I think I am and what is this self? What do I take to be me, myself, and mine? And, uh, but not to do it like by taking a class in philosophy and work out the logic of it, but to get quiet enough and still enough and attentive enough to watch the formation of self in the moment. Um, the... Um, you know, it can be as simple, you've gotten very calm and settled sitting here. Maybe you've gotten calmer than usual, it feels quite good, you feel like you're really present after sitting. And now uh, you get up and it feels like you're, like the whole world's getting up with you because you're still, that's so attentive in here. And you quietly go out to get your shoes and you very mindfully, it's kind of pull out your shoes from the shelf and you put them down and just you, the shoes, the floor, and it's so precious the simplicity and actually it turns out the shelf is kind of exquisitely beautiful and you'd never noticed the shelf was so beautiful and, and your shoes look at that you know wow shoes and sometimes meditators are kind of like have this wow factor wow you know supposed to you know you go up put in your shoes but you're putting on your shoes but you're already thinking about you know tomorrow and what you're going to say to who tomorrow and you kind of the fact you're putting on the shoes is just like a boring thing you know, it's uninteresting. As you put down your put on your shoes, you notice that someone's watching you. Oh, I better show them I know how to put on shoes. I need to be a good shoe putter on, and I need to do it mindfully, because you know, after all, this is a mindfulness center, and so I better, you know, I, I need to be a, you know, I need to be a mindful person here. So not only I have to be good at putting on shoes, I have to do it very mindfully. I hope this person notices that how, how mindful I am. That's a lot of I, me, my. You know, that I have to be, and I want them to see me this way, and I have to do it so that I'm seen as a certain kind of person. It, you know, it's, you know, and that just has to do with shoes. But um, this idea of me, myself, and mine uh, goes on for some people all day long in subtle ways, many times unseen. It's just automatic. It's just assumed that that's how things are. 
But when we meditate and get quiet and are mindful, uh, what we think is just normal, we see that is an activity of the mind, and we have some choice over it. You can be putting on your shoes and you see the thought arise, um, I need to be the perfect shoe putter honor today because I'm being watched. And you see that thought arise and you say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, why should I care what, whether people think I'm a good shoe putter honor? And so the thought arises, you see it and you poof, you let it go. If you're there, if you're already thinking about tomorrow and the, and the conversations you have to have with people and the concerns and worries, that little thought about being a good shoe-putter honor might be there in the corner of the mind, kind of subconsciously. But it's not really loud enough to be seen because your loud part of the mind is thinking about tomorrow. And so there's all these kind of back corners of the mind, subtle, sub, almost subconscious things going on that uh, accumulate that have a lot to do with me, myself, and mine. So these five aggregates are five areas of our life where people tend to, at least in ancient India, according to the Buddha, where people would will identify, this is who I am. So the first one is the body, our physical bodily experience. And it doesn't take a lot of reflection to think that there's a lot of attachment connected to self in people's bodies and how they look, what they are, people's, uh, uh, people's self-worth is sometimes connected to their f- body, uh, their form, their hair, their skin color, their nose, their all kinds of things that there's a lot of suffering around this um, that we perpetuate in our society. Uh, but, you know, people end up so identified with their body I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm this, I'm that. Um, I'm only appealing, I'm only likable because of, I'm not likable because of, you know, I, I have a wart. And so, uh, so there's a lot of concern about body. And some people say that our culture has an infatuation with youth and staying young. And so some people are exercising a lot and dieting a lot, uh, not because they want to just be, live a healthy, good life, but in order to keep themselves young and attractive because that's where it's at, is to be physically attractive. So it's a lot of, a lot of attachment around body that goes on. Uh, a little more subtle to see is attachment to um, our um, feelings. The feelings of things being pleasant and unpleasant. The sensations of pleasure and comfort and, and discomfort. And some people are very preoccupied by that and the idea of their, them being comfortable or, uh, or pleasant is kind of what drives their whole orientation in life. And they're constantly trying to be comfortable and have pleasure. Some people think that only if I have pleasure am I successful. A, ple- a pleasure, a pleasant experience is a proof that I've got everything going okay for myself. Unpleasant experiences is proof that somehow I failed. Some people think that uh, somehow identify strongly with this comfort and pain and discomfort and they somehow wrap up around this is who I am. It's very subtle, but uh, there's a wonderful exercise that uh, I'll sometimes give to people on retreat when the mind is a little bit more um, sharp and a little bit more can see the subtle differences, what's going on. 
And that is, uh, when we're sitting in pain, sometimes you sit in meditation and there's pain, and um, to tell yourself, to refer to the pain not as my pain, but as the pain. And some people, by changing that language from my pain to the pain, will find that there's a little bit more ease with the pain, a little bit more relaxation, a little bit more space for it. There's less preoccupation, less contraction around it. Um, you know, it's, it's the whole idea of my pain, my, 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 you know, is comes along with a lot of baggage, a lot of complications. But the pain makes it kind of simple. So uh, there can be a lot of me, myself, and mine around pain and pleasure. There can also be uh, some kind of identification with our perceptions of things. That what I perceive is accurate. I, I, or I'm the perceiver. The one who perceives is the real self. Or I'm right because I see it this way. And um, it's somewhat connected. That's a third heap or the aggregate is the heap of our perceptions, our concepts, our ideas of what is it going on. So the identification with ideas. The conceptual ideas of what's, what's happening, what's here and there. The fourth heap is um, kind of the whole inner world of mental activity. The most simple way of understanding it has to do with our thinking. Um, and as the tradition put, puts a big emphasis that has to do with intention, intentional thinking, what our motivations are, what we're trying to accomplish and do. And this is a whole inner landscape that's quite complex. The thoughts, ideas, memories, plans, projections, ideas. Um, and they have a lot to do with stories. That's where the stories can reside as well. And there can be a very strong identification with the stories. Um, you know, and ideas we have and interpretations we have and um, about ourselves and other people. And so the simplest maybe way of talking about attachment, self-attachment or, or identification with this whole heap of the inner thoughts is to see how deeply identified some people are with their opinions. Their political opinions, opinions about anything. Some people need to really insist they're right about their opinions because that's who they are. That kind of defines who they are. Um, Some people hold on to stories because um, uh, stories reinforce for them who they think they are. It's hard sometimes to feel, you know, to... People, some people really feel a need to be someone. That's how they become safe. That's how they find their way in the world. And so we hold on sometimes to ideas and stories about ourselves that, from our life, some of them which are dysfunctional, not so help, helpful. I've known people who have held on tightly uh, to stories of their suffering, to being a victim. And uh, on the surface, it seems like they're, you know, they're suffering and don't, they don't want to suffer. But uh, some people, if they go deeper inside and see what's driving their, their stories around being a victim, is, is that's all they know. That's how the world has related, related to them, how they've gotten attention, um, how they've gotten to be someone clear. And there's a clear sense of, I am this person who's a victim, and not having that creates chaos. And so some people get identified to these stories and ideas, this is who I am. So the fifth of these, uh, con- of these heaps, the fifth area of our inner life that is a strong place of identification, uh, this happens especially for people who can be deep meditators or have some very strong spiritual practice. Uh, 
um, but other people as well. And that is identification to consciousness. That, be, that consciousness is who I am. Yes, all these other things, stories, ideas, perceptions, the experience of the world, that's not who I am. But there is something, there is a kernel, there is a, 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 a core or a center to all this. And that's the consciousness that knows it all. And everything else seems to come and go, but the consciousness uh, doesn't seem to come and go. It's always there. And uh, that's who I am. And that's the, some people will use language like that's the true self, is this uh, kind of abiding awareness or consciousness. So the Buddha pointed out that even that can be an attachment to self, holding on. So as the hindrances quiet down and people meditate, you know, get quieter and do mindfulness, at some point, it isn't a matter of believing ideas that you shouldn't identify or identification is bad or wrong or this me, myself, my, my preoccupation is somehow you know, philosophically incorrect. Sometimes in Buddhism, the, uh, Buddhist teachers sometimes will give the, uh, pass on the idea that there is no self and then people, I'm supposed to believe there is no self now and no, there's nothing to do with it. What happens is, as, the, as this is a power of mindfulness, to be settled and quiet, to sharp mindfulness, really here, we start seeing that these, the identification, the movement of clinging on to ideas of me, myself, and mine, we see for ourselves that there's an ouch in it. It actually is uncomfortable. There's a contraction, there's a stress, there's tension in this identification that can, can happen. Even even appropriate identities. I mean, we all have identities. So it's only, having identity is not the problem. It's the act of identification with the identities, the act of kind of latching onto them, which is where this ouch can be, the stress can be. I like to think of it as wind drag. And uh, you know, someone someone asked me once, and what's the self in Buddhism? And my answer was wind drag. Because when, we had, when we're involved in this active identification with me, myself, and mine, then um, it slows down our mental processes, our thinking. We're not, as, uh, we're not as fluid and flexible with what's happening in the moment because we have this kind of like this, this tightening around something that we're holding on to or needing to be, needing to... You need to be a little louder. Can we turn it a little louder? And um, so... Um, so to sit and meditate and become quiet and then watch the little thoughts arise. You know, something like, something as simple as, you know, my knee really hurts. I'd like to move my knee. But I can't because I need to be a good Buddhist at the Buddhist center. You know, you know, because if I move, people think I'm not a good meditator. That's a lot of selfing going on, a lot of self. So if you can watch that and see those thoughts arise, it gives a chance to us to put a question mark after those thoughts. Is this really true? Do I need to operate on these thoughts? Is this really wise? Uh, is this really how I take care of my situation? Is by believing those thoughts automatically? Uh, uh, you know, um, when I was uh, about 13 or 14, my father uh, took me aside a little bit for one of these father-son talks. And he said to me, uh, Gil, uh, 
from time to time as you go through your life, you might notice that you have bizarre thoughts. And if that happens, just know that that's normal. You know, that's, that's what happens periodically, bizarre thoughts. I thought that was kind of, you know, I, I didn't understand anything. I, you know, I was 13, and what, what's he talking about? But uh, years later, lo and behold, I, I had one or two or so bizarre thoughts. And, um, and I had been warned about them. So rather than saying, oh no, I'm a terrible person because I had those thoughts, uh, you know, I'm a bad person, that thought is, that, having that thought is a proof of my true nature as being an awful person to think that. It was like, that's bizarre. <laughs> that's a bizarre thought. I've been told I was supposed to, ha- not supposed to, that those will happen. And so I could see them with much more ease. I didn't make them into myself, didn't latch onto them. And so, um, so to um, get quiet enough to see how this operates is what I'm keep emphasizing over and over. So important that I keep repeating myself here. Um, so it's not a matter of believing, it's a matter of seeing when we do this practice. In seeing how we hold on and how we cling. Now in this text where it talks about these five areas, body, feelings, perceptions, they call it sometimes translated into, sometimes into English as mental formations, and consciousness, these five areas. Um, what it says in the text, the instructions for mindfulness practitioners is to watch how these phenomena arise and pass. How they there, they come and they disappear. And some of them you can see come and go quite quickly. You can watch and see, uh, um, you know, perceptions come and go, or uh, if you really pay attention, or feelings uh, are really fleeting if you really pay careful, careful attention to them. Some might be a little more enduring, but as the practice gets deeper, we see much more the fluid, the flow of it, the river of these things coming and going. And the advantage of that is once you start getting the flow of them, you see them arise and see them go, it's a lot easier to see um, the wind drag. Or, you know, if if, if you see it as a stream uh, and you're trying to paddle a boat or flow down the river and you put something heavy into the water that slows you down, it's much easier to see how we get caught and we stop the momentum of the flow movement. Um, The image I like is going down to the river, river bank with a bucket and you're watching the river go by and then you take a bucket and you scoop up the water in the bucket and then you walk around some more and you say to tell everyone, look, look, here's the river. The river's not in the bucket, it's water's in the bucket. But you didn't, you didn't capture any river at all in the bucket. The river is still back at the, at the river. And um, so this idea, so, so if you can watch the moment to moment operation of the direct experience of bodily sensations, of the feelings that come along with the sensations, the perceptions that that we have with them, the mental formations, the attitudes, the ideas that we have around all things, and even consciousness flow. Uh, Then you can see the times when you you take your mind's bucket and you've left the flow of the present moment. And if you can see that, uh, then it's easier to settle back into it and continue to stay in the flow, stay in the flow. Most importantly, not because we're supposed to stay in the flow, as if that's the point. The point in Buddhism is to see how we get caught and how we suffer in getting caught 
around ideas of self so we can let go. I don't know what percentage of human suffering has to do with self. But uh, self-identity, self-ideas. But I would venture to, if I was going to, you know, have to vote or something, I would suspect that it's more than 50% of our suffering is related to self. So just as one exercise, even though it's a little technical, maybe a little difficult to understand if you've never heard about what I taught just now, it's really powerful. It can be a great help in our lives. So, um, so when the hindrances get quieter, then it's possible to see this more subtle operation of identification that goes on around these five different areas. And we don't, maybe that was true in ancient India or that's the framework or the way that the Buddha categorized these things. <clears throat> they might not work for us exactly the same way how we understand our experience. But the principle of paying attention to how we identify with some aspect of our experience is the same. And that's really where it's the, the heart of it is. See, oh, there I'm making a self out of this. this. There I'm claiming this is mine. And there's where I pulled the bucket out of the river or the wind drag. This is where I've left the flow of it all. And then getting wise with that. So then um, with that, as a, uh, when, that, when this idea of identification gets simpler, <clears throat> it doesn't it happen so much because it's a little bit of a complicated thing, me, myself, and mine. When the meditation gets quieter and calmer, then at some point we can go to the next exercise, which is a much, much more simple uh, exercise. And, um, and uh, we'll save that for next time I talk. Um, it's, uh, it's an exercise where we get to notice uh, how we get knotted up. And the literal word is knots. See the knots, how we get knotted up in our experience. And uh, it's a kind of more simple than these hindrances and identifications. So we'll leave that for, I'll be back in a couple of weeks for that. And, um, and then once we get, uh, learn about the knots and the knots untangle, then the untangling of the knots, the loosening of the knots, liberates, frees up uh, these seven factors of awakening. And so these beautiful qualities of mind that are kind of cherished in Buddhism, not only because they're quite beautiful, but also because they're onward leading to liberation are the uh, penultimate exercise. So we'll have another three weeks or so to get through all this. So we have about five minutes before the end. And uh, if anyone would like to ask any questions about this or comments or testimonials about working with identification, it would be lovely to hear. It's a testimonial, I guess. I had an um, experience where I realized what I was identifying with. And it's funny because it was Vipassana, like it was the meditation. And one of my cousins told me, you know, people who practice Vipassana go for 10 days, sit alone. Uh, they're selfish. And I could, they're selfish. And I could like feel myself identifying with it. Like I felt like a pinch in my 
heart. I was like, how can she see that? We're trying to improve ourselves. But I didn't say anything. I could like sit back and watch my identification with the practice. So, By watching it, uh, was there more peace? Um, I don't know. I, but I could just see that there was suffering, uh-huh. I guess. Uh-huh. Great, yeah. great. I didn't have to react and I didn't have to justify in that and moment. So fantastic. a little bit. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's where you saw a place of choice and you chose not to go along with it and just to watch it. Yeah. Great. That's like, I love hearing that. Thank you. <laughs> so I hand over there. Uh, so um, one of the aggregates that you spoke of, the uh, mental formations, um, it seems like that uh, could like also essentially like contain all the other ones. Like, or all the other ones could manifest as like you could have mental formations about all of the other aggregates. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, you can have stories. If if, you, if uh, stories or intentions or uh, these uh, about the other things, right? You can, rather than just having a simple, you know, hear a sound outside and it's just a simple sound. It's suddenly it's like you know. There shouldn't be a meditation center in an urban center where there's car traffic, you know. I think I'll write a letter and tell them we should, <laughs> we should move to a quieter place, you know. And something's definitely wrong here. And I chose the wrong meditation center to meditate in because there's car traffic sounds. You know, that's, that's a lot of mental formations for just the sound of a car going by. <laughs> so, so, so like for, for that example, like, so then sort of the distinction, if something's like, a, I guess, like a pure perception versus a perception... That like leads to a mental formation. Yes, yes. That's sort of the way you think about that. A little bit, yes. Uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to use the word pure as if there is yeah. such a thing, but we get closer to that. Simpler, simpler, less less baggage connected to it, and that'll be a little bit the topic for next time I talk in two weeks, um, because this, uh, these knots have to do with um, the, uh, learning how to be in the, the most simple flow of direct experience, which is what you're describing. Thanks. So, um, be sure to put your shoes on well. <laughs> what? They will be good little Yes, yeah, be good little Buddhists. <laughs> no, please, don't be Buddhists. <laughs> Save the world from, you know, you know, from being Buddhists. If you have to do something like that, be a Buddha. Or be be compassionate, be caring. Please care for your world that you live in. After today, actually, today's Earth Day, right? I gave an Earth Day talk yesterday at IMC, but uh, this is a you know, it's a, I think it's a very important day, Earth Care Day, and and uh, to to care for this world is the way of caring for our fellow human beings, the fellow living life on the planet, for the planet itself, and it's also a way of caring for ourselves. Uh, what Buddhism teaches is this mutuality of a system. We're all in it together. We're all interde- interconnected and very interdependent in very profound ways. And so this uh, practice of mutual care 
and the hope I have, this kind of practice of mindfulness and, you know, again, the metaphor of going deep inside and becoming liberated, um, is not just a personal, uh, we don't just do it personally for ourselves. It's not, you can't just do it for yourself because that's more identification. It's a freedom from identification that this inner process goes through. And there's a wonderful way, I think of it, we go inward and it turns, uh, turns us inside out. And, uh, and then we come out and we're, you know, you know, we're sensitive and open and connected in a whole different way than we were before when we were maybe inside a shell. So um, may we be turned inside out so we can care for this, wor- care for this world, for this earth. Thank you.